have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 9 this morning. If you're just starting with us, this is a peculiar place to start reading the Bible. No one probably who is for the first time reading the Bible would be told, why don't you start in the book of Revelation? I'd be watching the end of a movie. But at the same time, the Bible, the book of Revelation begins with this, blessed are those who hear the words of this book and heed the things that are, that are said in this book. So we can all get a blessing, but I want to remind you that we are in the middle of the book. So you can go back and listen. Um, a number of us have been sharing and teaching through the book. So I want to just, I always have to give this little disclaimer from, from the beginning as we're going through here, especially if you're just joining us, that there are two different ways that people have approached this book. And one of them we said is a futuristic view, and that is that the section from Revelation 4 all the way through 19 is describing a brief period of history in the future called the tribulation period and these events that are going to take place in this very small period of time. And also along the lines of that teaching is usually the, the, the related teaching that we're not going to be here, that the church will be removed from the earth and we will be kind of like watching that from heaven. And that's a very relevant and a very possible way to read the book. And I certainly don't want to say that that's not true. But at the same time, historically, Christians have had a very different way of looking at the book. In fact, a number of them, many thought that it was describing events in the first century, but others have felt that these events are describing things that began from the time of Christ until his return. So I wanna back up and give you a quick illustration. In the beginning, when God created this earth, he put Adam on there, and it was God's desire to be the king of the earth, and Adam and Eve would be his little vice region. Adam would be his ruling king. God put him down here and said, rule. And it was God's plan and purpose to rule and reign with Adam through Adam. And so God walked with Adam daily. But when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have done one of two things. He could have destroyed Adam and Eve, or he could have withdrawn his presence and his kingdom. And that's what he chose to do. God pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden, and then God removed his visible presence from the earth. And from that time on, we have sort of this, this thing going on on earth. There's billions of people prancing around down here. The kingdom of God technically is in heaven now, but it's God's desire for the kingdom of God to return to the earth. And so we read at the very end of the Bible that one day the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our God, and God himself is going to come back down and dwell among us. In between that time, though, we're going, what's going on down here? Well, think of it as two radio frequencies. you got AM and FM. So right from the beginning, we see this contrast between people. There's only two types, those who are going to turn to the Lord and those who aren't. And so right from the first two kids, Cain and Abel, Cain decides to kill Abel. And that becomes a paradigm for how the world will unfold until God establishes his kingdom on planet Earth. And it, it kind of looks like this. So in Reb or Genesis chapter 4, it says, Then men began to call along the Lord, call to the Lord for salvation and begin to follow him. And throughout the history of planet Earth, there is this minority of people who will turn to the Lord and begin to follow him. And as they do that, they will experience trouble because most of the world does not follow him. And in fact, most of the world, because they don't follow him, they follow Satan. They don't like people who follow God. 
So we're told in 1 John, don't be surprised if the world doesn't know us, they don't know him. So here in the first century, the book of Revelation, the churches are going through this tremendous persecution and, and the Lord Jesus appears to John and says, here's what I want you to reveal to them. And my suggestion, and this isn't something novel or new, is that Revelation 4 through 19 is not primarily to tell us about a few events that are gonna take place in a seven year period of time, but rather the events that will take place from the time of the coming of Christ until he returns. And so many of these references are not singular to one event that will happen at this short period of time. So when the four horsemen are unleashed and war and famine, my suggestion is that's going to take place in history from the time of Christ until the return of Christ. So John unfolds three series of seven judgments from God. Now we just sang, is anyone worthy to take the scroll? So the background of that is the scroll is the title deed to earth. Who is going to indeed reign as king over the earth? And no one was worthy. But then Jesus comes out and he says, I'm worthy because I died and rose and I conquered sin and Satan and I have the keys. And so Jesus is worthy to unload the judgments on this earth. And eventually at the end of these judgments, it says he will return and the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So here's where we are. We went through seven seals and now we're going through seven trumpets. And again, I want to suggest that my view is that these are not chronological, nor are they singular. But that's fine if you hold that. But either way, they teach lessons that all of us can learn from. So today we're going to look at the fifth seal, beginning in, in I'm sorry, the sixth seal, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 9. And I'll say it again, not seal, trumpet. Okay. Verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So we just saw that the, the fifth angel last week unleashed a series of demonic beings that were spoken of like locusts and that these demonic beings would torture and, and, and trouble mankind, but they couldn't kill them, right? And what was their purpose? And I suggested that God allows people to be afflicted in order to bring them to repentance. This next set of demons, unlike the last set, those is a close connection, this time they can kill. The last group could harm, but they couldn't kill. This group can kill. So we're just gonna see three things real quick. The release of these demonic destroyers. Number two, the role of these de demonic des destroyers. And then number three, the result. Okay, so let's look in verse 13 and see them released. It says, the six angels sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Now again, the futuristic view would say sometime during the tribulation, God's going to let these four demons out, four, four angels out to, to do their destructive work, possibly. Or is this simply saying that this is one of the judgments that God has been pouring out on humanity throughout history to bring people to come to Christ? Now let, let's loop back. First of all, why does the voice come from the form horns of the golden altar? Why not just say, I heard a voice from heaven? Why does he identify it with this altar which is before God? Well, let me remind you, the last time we saw that altar was in chapter 6. 
And if you remember what was going on at that altar in verse 9, was underneath the altar were the souls of those who had been slain, and they were crying out, How long, O Lord? So the very place where the saints are praying, Oh God, how long are you going to get let godless people kill us and persecute us is the very place where a voice comes and there's a i want to suggest a connection here god is answering the prayer of his of his people in heaven how long from the altar and a voice comes from the altar and the the voice says release the four angels who are bound at the great river euphrates so let's start with this there were four angels back in chapter seven who held back the four corners of the earth now, and, or the four winds of heaven. I don't think these are the same four angels. But I do want to remind you that the Bible says that some of Satan's demons are already bound in the abyss. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. So there are millions of demons roaming the earth, and that's the ones we fight against, principalities and powers. But there are also many demons who are already in the abyss. Some of them God has already put in chains. You can read about that in the book of Jude as well. But in the purposes of God, he determined that some of them would be released. You're like, wait, what? I don't get it. Well, here's the thing. God's not like us. God's hard drive is a little bigger, I use metaphorically. And so the mysteries of God and the wisdom of God are far beyond our understanding. And to go, God, why didn't you just kill the devil and all his demons right in the beginning? Let me remind you of an interesting verse. Proverbs 16, 9 says this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So down in this torturous abyss are demons who are being tortured when suddenly four of them are released. Now again, one could say, oh, this is going to take place in the future. Or another view is, this has already taken place. When Christ came to earth, he began to allow these demonic influences to do something. Now, look what it says. Verse 15, they had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year. You say, why all the details, John? Well, what does that tell us about God? The Bible says God is working everything according to the counsel of his will. Like, think about a heavenly airport operator trying to watch everything at once. God is, is, is so wise that he's hearing the prayers of his children, he's seeing a sparrow fall to the ground, and, he, and he's got on his calendar, okay, this day, this hour, this moment. Everything is in God's purpose, and that should comfort us as Christians. When God sent Jesus, he didn't go, this seems like a good time, in the fullness of time. So let's be reminded that God is in absolute control of all of the details of our lives. So these demons are released, and it says in verse 15 that they might kill a third of mankind. Now, the futuristic view is gone. This is all literal, okay? So back in chapter 6, we already had a fourth of mankind killed. Now those who take this future would say, now there's a third more killed, which now means that half the population of planet Earth is dead. So if this is future and literal, and there's 7 billion people on the Earth, in a, in a short period of time, three and a half to seven years, God's going to kill 3.5 billion people. Not impossible, but, but I don't think that's the primary meaning here. I don't think this third and fourth 
we're supposed to get out our calculators and do fractions and go, now we're down to this. I think the idea is that massive amounts of humanity are going to be destroyed. And for various reasons. So that was the release of these demons. So here comes four angels. Now, how are they going to kill massive amounts of humanity, whether it's literal? Well, they're not going to do it alone. They're not going to go, okay, the four of us, we got a job, let's get busy. But instead, all of a sudden there's this transition. So let's look now at the role of these destroyers and what I mean by role, what they're going to do. But also, if you're in a play and you're told what's your role, right, in the play, some of you are like, yeah, I'm still at my therapist because in the third grade play, all I was was a flower in the background, right? But usually when you have a role, you also have a costume and an appearance. So what I mean by the role here is what these demons look like and what is their role? What are they going to do? So let's look at it. He says in verse 16, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And I, immediately I go, time out, John, time out. My, my, my bad here. I just need to ask you a question, John. You just went from four angels to 200 million horsemen. Like, could I just pause John and ask a simple question? What, where, where did we go from four angels to 200 million horsemen? So again, believers have struggled to interpret that. Even those who do believe that this is futuristic, many of them, even Charles Ryrie does not take this literally. He does not believe that in the future tribulation there will be 200 million soldiers on horseback, okay? In fact, one commentator said this, and I'm like, wow, that's interesting. If you took 200 million people and put them in a marching rank, like when you see the North Korean soldiers, it would be a mile wide and 85 miles long. So I'm not convinced that this is talking about a human army. Now, Hal Lindsey is convinced. Hal Lindsey found an article in 1961 in Time magazine that suggested that one day the Chinese will be able to raise an army of 200 million people. And I go, okay, that's possible. Not opposed to that, but even there to say, he went on and others have gone to say, and, and they're going to re return to fighting on horseback. And I'm going, that's pretty hard to stomach, that we're going to go from tanks and stealth planes back to fighting on horseback. So it's probably better to see horses are usually in scripture symbolic for battle and war. The Bible says the horse is prepared for battle. And so what we have to wrestle with here is, are these horsemen literal soldiers or are these horsemen demons? Now, I'm going to suggest that they're demons for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the enormous number of them, but secondly, the description of them. So let's take a look at these beings, okay? He says, I heard the number of them, and this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. Now, the NAS has in italics the riders, but we're going to assume this is describing either the horses themselves or those who rode on them. They had breastplates. Now, right there, you stop and go, breastplates. Horses don't generally have breastplates, 
But let's, let's remember that those locusts that we saw just early in the chapter, they also had breastplates. Again, so there's a close connection between these demonic beings and the last group. They had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone. Now, I don't want you to miss that. Sometimes just pull out a, a strong concordance and look how many times fire and brimstone is used in the book of Revelation. And it's always used to describe God's judgment. In fact, Satan himself, Revelation 20 says, will be thrown into fire and brimstone. And then the end of chapter 20 says, everyone who doesn't know Christ is thrown into the lake of fire. So there's fire and brimstone, judgment. But then it describes these heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And I'm going, okay, hang on here. So here's where we move to another thought. How Lindsay and many futurists suggest that this description is, is John's way of trying to describe modern military instruments of warfare. And I'm like, that's possible. In other words, how would John describe a tank or a helicopter? So it's possible that John saw, you know, this last day's battle with tanks and helicopters. He said, I don't know, I guess it looked like a horse with metal on it. Or I'm gonna suggest that that's not his intention to kind of cause people to go, wow, don't see one of them very often, but rather it's just symbolic apocalyptic literature to describe the hideousness and the ferociousness of battle. So the heads of the horses are like lions and lions are fierce. Now out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Now again, you could go, see, it's literal. You know, it's gonna be like when, 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 um, when the Marines went into some of the islands of Japan, they had to go from cave to cave and shoot fire in there. And I'm going, I, I, I don't think the point here is that these are military weapons that are shooting flames and smoke out and nuking people. But rather, fire and brimstone is symbolic of God's judgment. And you'll notice that they proceeded out of their mouths. And you're like, well, that's literal. And I'm going, wait a minute. Throughout the book, the Bible says, a sword will come out of the mouth of Jesus, okay? I'm pretty sure that's not intended to, to picture Jesus having a big sword coming out and chopping people up from his mouth. So things proceeding out of the mouth do not necessarily need to be taken as these actual literal things, but rather they're pouring out God's judgment. And if that's not weird enough, look at verse 19. You're like, well, wh what's more dangerous, their head or their tail? Well, they're pouring fire out of their mouth, but it says the power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And you go, now you lost me, right? Some of you still are in there because you had to be the back of the horse in that play, right? There were two people, the front and the back. But think about this, like this is bizarre. Is John intending for us to go, this is an Apache helicopter and the tails are shooting stingray laser to kill people. And I'm going, that's pretty hard to, 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 to imagine, particularly when it's in the last group, they were only allowed to shoot and, and harm people who weren't believers. So how would they even know? That's a believer. Don't shoot him. Shoot that one. So again, I think it's symbolic imagery. What do you think of when you think of a serpent? Read the book of Revelation. Every time there's a serpent mentioned, it's satanic. And so is John intending us to, to, to go, 
Benjamin loves to use the word epic. This is an epic one for us to, for the kids to draw pictures. Is he going to go, this is what these military weapons are going to do? I'm not so sure of that. I think he's just simply showing the, in apocalyptic literature, a ferociousness of demonic beings. And either way, the point of them, look at verse 19, they do harm. They do harm. That's the big picture. Why would God allow demonic beings to do harm? Now, if you were here last week, we saw that they could only bring physical pain, right? And that physical pain was supposed to draw men to repentance. This time, they can kill people, okay? Now, those who, who see these as demonic beings, you have to understand, their intention here is not gone, I hope I can help these people to wake up and go to heaven and repent so they don't end up in hell like I do. So don't think for a moment that these demonic creatures are cooperating with Jesus to try to bring people to salvation. But God uses everything for his glory. When they hung Jesus on Calvary, the Bible says God uses the wrath of man to praise him. So these demons are just unleashed, and they, they love to kill. Let's kill people, right? But God's using this, okay? So physical pain causes those who are in that pain sometimes to repent. Well, guess what else causes people to repent? When people drop dead left and right around us, right? When the, when the plague goes through England and, and people are seeing people dying all around them, what about the people who aren't killed by the plague? The goal is to bring them to repentance. And so my suggestion is that these visions are intended to show that throughout history god has used terrible things like world war one world war two 9-1-1 and perhaps even the pandemic of which many people have died to bring the same purpose to call men to repentance but ironically this time john shows the result so let's close with the result, and I'm going to add the phrase, the unexpected result, right? You would go, he releases the demons. The role of the demons is to inflict and kill and harm and bring war and cancer and death, and the people still alive, you probably are all going to go, God, have mercy on me. But instead, look at this. The rest of mankind, in other words, everyone who has been spared the physical judgment of God in this life, who were not killed by these various things that have come on the earth, did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, now let me just stop with that phrase, did not repent, because I'll give you a simple illustration. Those of you who have raised kids, you know that some of them, all they have to do is see the spanking stick, and they repent. But how many of us have said, we would, and again, I, I, we can discuss spanking. I know some of you think that's unhealthy or inappropriate, and, and we could have a dialogue about that, but the point would be this. We've all heard of people who go, that kid you could spank all day long, and it had no effect. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, one word of correction is better for a wise man than a hundred blows on the back of a fool. So why is God showing us here that in spite of all of these terrible things that happened, the rest of mankind did not repent? And they didn't repent of two things, their worship and beliefs, 
and their wicked behavior. The Ten Commandments are kind of like this. The first five are about worship of the living God. The second five are about behavior, right? So notice, they don't repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So let me just frame it this way. Some of you here, you walk around on planet Earth as though God doesn't functionally exist. Even if you go, yeah, I believe there's a God. There's no connection between the fact that there is a God and your life. You don't worship him daily. You don't thank him. You don't submit to him. You don't serve him. You don't seek to obey him. You don't plead for his mercy. You just functionally disconnect from him. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And while that might seem like, hey, I don't bug the man upstairs and he doesn't bug me, that might seem kind of neutral. It bugs the God upstairs. The Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men down here on earth who exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve his creation rather than the creator who is overall blessed forever. So God's not up there going, well, you know, sarah, sarah, you make your choice. He is pleading for people to repent. And the word repent is important because it's not a popular word and it's used frequently in the book of Revelation. Repentance is part of conversion. There are two words that the Bible uses to describe when you get saved, repent and believe. And think of them as two sides of the same coin. To believe is to trust the facts of the scriptures that Jesus died for all of my sins, shed his blood and rose from the dead and I put my trust in him. But in order to turn to him, to trust him, repentance is a willingness to turn from something. Repentance is not works. If you're, if you're an addict, you don't go, I'm gonna clean up my life and then God will accept me. Repentance is a decision. When you are willing to turn from anything that you know is disobedience from God. And this is why most people aren't going to go to heaven, not because they haven't heard John 3, 16. The Bible says they love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil. They have no intention of submitting to God. So religious people need to repent of their self-righteousness, and godless people need to repent of their ignoring God. But in essence, repentance is a willingness to say, hey, I've been living for myself, whether I'm sinning like it's my job or trying to get to heaven by being good, I still need to repent. I need to be willing to turn from my sin because I believe that Jesus died for my sin. So, look at the specific things. Verse 21, they did not repent of their murders. And today we might say, yeah, there's lots of crime and murder, but how about abortion? They did not repent of their sorceries. Now, the Greek word there, formikia, Pharmakia is often used of mind-altering substances, and very well here it could be illicit use of drugs. They did not repent of their immorality. Oh, God, have mercy on American culture. Any sex outside of marriage, which is a gift from God to be enjoyed, is called immorality, whether it's adultery, Sex before you're married, fornication, pornography and masturbation, homosexual sin, any sin or sexual activity outside of marriage is called immorality. And 
men refuse to repent of that. And we're living in a culture right now where half the people around us are going, I'm a Christian and it's okay. And God's going, it's not okay. But we don't beat on homosexuality and say, oh, those pervs. It's sexual sin. And the Bible lists them all together. People sleeping together. People cheating on their wives or people sleeping with the same sex. It all falls into the category of immorality. And finally, men do not repent of their thefts. So let me close with this simple thought. The book of Revelation has two, times, two types of repentance. The first repentance is conversion repentance. In other words, have you ever turned from your sin to Jesus to be saved? Can you, you don't even have to know when. You just know at some point, even as a child, I realized that I was lost and I found that Jesus loved me and he would take me back and forgive me, and so I did. If you have never done that, you're headed for brimstone and fire. That's what the Bible says. But God doesn't want that. He's not willing for any to perish. And if, if you go, well, I'll take my chances, that's a bad risk. So if you never repented, we're here to help you to, to think about that, to know what it means to turn and trust Christ, because God wants you to know you're forgiven. But the other type of repentance is the ongoing repentance of the Christian. Ironically, the word repent in the book of Revelation is far more used for Christians in the first three chapters because in Jesus' address to each of the seven churches, there were areas where he says, you're doing good over here, but over here you've lost your first love. Over here you're compromising. Over here, you've become lukewarm. Over here, you're allowing sin in your church. And what does he say? Repent. J.I. Packer used to say, repentance is the ongoing privilege of Christians. So repentance shouldn't be fearful. It should be normal for us as Christians to go, frequently my heart may have wandered from the Lord. You don't have to get saved over again. Jesus is just growing us and showing us, Tom, these are idols. Jesus isn't Lord of your life. You need to ask forgiveness for this and turn from that, and we walk with him. But anyone who calls themselves a Christian, who claims to have repented to conversion, but refuses to walk in the repentance of sanctification, ought to have a question mark over their head. Am I really a Christian? If I refuse, as a forgiven follower of Christ, to turn from my sin, and I'm going to blatantly live there and say, no one can tell me otherwise, I need to wake up and think about that. So may I extend to you and myself the mercy of Jesus. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, said, go and preach that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is available to all men. And so may God help us as a church to see sinners repenting and getting saved, and to see us saints continuing to repent and grow. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you use terrible things in history, and they're painful, but they're purposeful. And even though our hardened hearts would have never repented except for your mercy, we're so thankful that you granted us repentance. And please help us to continue to express and experience repentance and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.